Hi there, welcome to my podcast. This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. First up, Two Gentlemen of Verona. Does it really deserve its status as the weakest in Shakespeare's canon? Only one way to find out. my loving Proteus. What light is light, if Sylvia be not seen? Our maid howling, our cat wringing her hands. Love and a bit with a dog. That's what they want. So even though I know that all of you are Shakespeare experts who have read all the plays, I'm going to refresh your memory every week by giving you a short synopsis. How short? One minute. This is your one minute Synopsis. God's sake, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. All right, so I'm setting my timer, and here we go. In Verona, Proteus and Valentine are two BFFs who are the equivalent of 15th century college graduates. They are overeducated and underemployed. Valentine takes off to Milan, but Proteus stays behind to woo Julia. Proteus' father shows up and demands that Proteus go off to Milan and become a man because he's wasting away. Proteus leaves, and Julia decides to go after him, dressed as a boy named Sebastian. Cut to Milan. Valentine and Sylvia are in love, but her father wants her to marry someone else. Proteus arrives, falls in love with Sylvia at first sight, and sabotages Valentine so badly that Valentine is exiled from Milan. In the woods, Valentine is seized by outlaws, but in a stunning reversal, convinces them to make him their leader. Meanwhile, Proteus tells Sylvia that Valentine is dead and woos her, which is witnessed by Julia, who is now in Milan in disguise. Sylvia escapes Milan, only to be captured by the outlaws. Proteus and Julia have pursued Sylvia, and Proteus tries to force her to love him. Valentine interrupts, Proteus apologizes, and amazingly, everyone is forgiven for everything, even the outlaws, who for no reason at all are allowed to return to Milan. Oh, and through it all, Speed and Launce are clowns, and they're running around, but neither of them have anything to do with the plot. There's no denying that Two Gentlemen of Verona is a deeply flawed play, but does it deserve its status as the dullest sword in Shakespeare's armory? The Merchant of Venice is messy, Henry VI is dull, and there's very little that's funny in the so-called comedy of Troilus and Cressida. Yet, Two Gentlemen remains the butt of Shakespearean jokes, such as the one in Shakespeare in Love. <laughs> Now that dog is probably the one who W.C. Fields was thinking of when he warned actors never to work with animals, because the dog will not shed a tear at a family tragedy. He is declared, quote, the sourest nature dog that ever lived. Crab has become so memorable that when Shakespeare on the Sound performed Two Gentlemen of Verona in 2014, the New York Times reported on the dog instead, and I'll leave a link to that in the show page. Harold Bloom, the esteemed critic who wrote essays on all of Shakespeare's plays, said that two gentlemen, quote, might merit dismissal were it not partly rescued by the clown Launce and Launce's dog Crab, who has more personality than anyone else. I like Harold Bloom, but his critical eye is often too drawn by the secondary characters. See, for instance, his blind devotion to Falstaff, who I sometimes think deserves a lot less attention than he receives. Bloom is similarly drawn to Launce, 
even though he, like the other clown Speed, have absolutely nothing to do with the play and could very easily be cut without anyone noticing a thing. Bloom has no interest in Valentine, Proteus, or the women who love them. To be sure, they are four characters in search of a better story, but that can be said about many of the people wandering around Shakespeare's world. Portia deserves a lot better than the Merchant of Venice, and the bastard Falconbridge should be anywhere but the shambling history that is the play known as King John. Proteus loves Julia, until he heads off to Milan, where he promptly falls in love with Sylvia. Now, love at first sight is par for the course in Shakespeare, and other plays do it just as badly. Compare Proteus's sudden unexplainable lust for that which strikes Romeo in Romeo and Juliet, Olivia in Twelfth Night, and the entire cast of As You Like It. Sylvia is already being wooed by Proteus's best friend, Valentine. Before you can ask, oh Sylvia, what is she? Proteus has betrayed Valentine and has had him exiled from Milan. Now all this would be tolerable if Proteus was an Iago-like villain who receives his just desserts, but he is one of the title characters and so is one of the heroes of the play. He's a gentleman in name only, but then Valentine is really no better. Valentine has a low opinion of women, as shown when he tells the Duke of Milan that, quote, a woman sometimes scorns what best contents her, and that, quote, if she do frown, tis not in hate of you, but rather to beget more love in you. In other words, Valentine doesn't think no means no. With this the prevailing philosophy, why shouldn't Proteus try to woo Sylvia? against her will. We can almost forgive Valentine for being a product of his time, but he erases any remaining goodwill in the final scene. After witnessing Proteus try to force Sylvia to yield to his desire, he forgives the would-be rapist after Proteus delivers a scant four and a half lines of text. My shame and guilt confounds me. Forgive me, Valentine. If hearty sorrow be a sufficient ransom for offence, I tender it here. I do as truly suffer as e'er I did commit. This is surely the least sincere apology in the history of crime, but Valentine accepts it, not because he believes Proteus is a shame, but because Valentine himself doesn't really care. He goes on to compound our disgust by offering Sylvia to her attacker. Is it any wonder that poor Julia cries, Oh me, unhappy, before fainting dead away? Women in Shakespeare's world are notorious for marrying beneath them, but few stoop so low as Julia and Sylvia. Their men are disloyal, and yet they marry them just the same. But what choice do they have? Sylvia's other suitors are dolts, and Julia doesn't seem to have anyone else at all. Shakespeare often does this. He, he often populates his world with nothing but dull, masculine lovers. He seemed to understand the plight of the women of his time. They were expected to marry, but more often than not, they were like the voters in the 2016 presidential campaign. They select the candidates they hate the least. It's this rancid ending of two gentlemen which has left a bad taste in the mouth of theatergoers for over 400 years, because Proteus and Valentine, like Bertram in All's Well That Ends Well, comes to a happy end, despite the fact that we'd all like to see them drowned in the Thames. At least with Bertram, we can be satisfied with the fact that Helena is just as bad as he is. Her clever bed trick is nothing more than sexual assault, since she tricks Bertram into thinking he is betting another woman. There's a disconcerting theme here. Shakespeare often used sexual assault as a punchline, with the notable exception of poor Lavinia in Titus Adronicus, who is given the respect and vengeance she deserves. Helena and Bertram deserve each other. 
They are both Machiavellian plotters who know what's best for them, but Julia and Sylvia have done nothing to deserve the fate of being the wives of Proteus and Valentine. And so we as theater people have dismissed two gentlemen, saving for those fans of musicals who recall the 1971 rock opera written by that same crazy Canadian who gave us hair. Productions of Two Gentlemen Verona are sporadic, which is unfortunate because until the last act, Two Gentlemen Verona is a pretty harmless, if slightly dark, comedy about man's infidelity to man. It is also proto-Shakespeare, containing elements that will be seen in future work. Julia dresses as a boy, prophesying the similar acts of cross-dressing by Rosalind, Viola, Portia, the outlaws of As You Like It are present in the forests outside Verona, and the comedy of the warring suitors would reappear in The Taming of the Shrew, The Merchant of Venice, among others. The act of betraying a friend in the office of love will return in Much Ado About Nothing and A Midsummer Night's Dream, but in those cases, Shakespeare makes the betrayal palatable by making it either a misunderstanding or the work of magic. He must have learned his lesson. If you're going to have a man try to sleep with his best friend's girl, you can't rely on a four-and-a-half-word speech to ensure your happy ending. George Bernard Shaw once wrote, quote, Plot has always been the curse of serious drama. It is so out of place there that Shakespeare never could invent one. End quote. One could argue that some of Shaw's own plays reveal a similar problem, but I'll save that for another podcast. Still, the basic premise of Shaw's statement is correct. Time and again, Shakespeare is thwarted by the necessities of plot. Here is another example of how Two Gentlemen is proto-Shakespeare. It is the first in a long string of plays whose final acts are unworthy of the four that preceded them. Now, Shaw rewrote the last act of Cymbeline once upon a time, and it's likely we need someone just as daring to go to work on the last act of Two Gentlemen of Verona. Playing Proteus as a comic whose threats to Sylvia can't be taken seriously might save the day, and there was also a production back in the 1960s in which his regret is so intense that in addition to his four-and-a-half-line apology, he also tries to shoot himself in the head. I think these are weak solutions to what is a deep and unavoidable problem with the final scene. But, to be honest, is it any more problematic than the ending of Taming of the Shrew, where the poor actress playing Kate has to proclaim her shame that women are so simple? Or what about The Merchant of Venice, where Shylock is carted away to become a Christian while everyone else runs off to get married? Two Gentlemen, for all its flaws, has the benefit of remaining consistent in tone. Until Julia demeans herself by marrying Proteus, she is a perfectly credible heroine. Perhaps not a Rosalind or a Viola, but definitely more interesting than Cressida or all those dullards who populate A Midsummer Night's Dream. Julia, like Helena in All's Well That Ends Well, is a pragmatist who understands that there's a danger in playing the coquette. Since maids in modesty say no to that which they would have the proffer construe I. Oh, fie, fie, how wayward is this foolish love! that like a testy babe will scratch the nurse, and presently all humbled kiss the rod. Julia anticipates the final trauma of the play when she realizes early on how dangerous it is to make men accustomed to women who teach their brow to frown when, quote, inward joy forced my heart to smile, end quote. And so she takes the bold step of pursuing Proteus to Milan. Her great mistake is to maintain loyalty even when she shouldn't. 
Knowing that Proteus is unfaithful, she agrees to woo Sylvia on his behalf. She is in disguise, remember. Now, a similar thing occurs in Twelfth Night, but that degrades quickly into farce. Here, it allows Julia to explore the complex frenemy emotions she has for another woman who, though a, quote, virtuous gentlewoman, is also her rival. Now, the endings to both As You Like It and Twelfth Night are just as forced and rushed as the one in Two Gentlemen of Verona, yet those plays have become the gold standard of Shakespearean mirth. It's notable that in those plays, though, there is nothing detestable about the male characters. A similar thing can be said about all of the popular plays, in which the men are either heroes or delicious villains who keep everyone happy by getting punished in the end. Since men are the ones who have championed Shakespeare for hundreds of years, I really don't think this can be a coincidence. Two Gentlemen of Verona makes all men look like knaves and all women look like fools for loving them. There are few plays in the canon which could do more to encourage women to forego the company of men forever. We go to the theater to escape from the world, or to see a glimpse of the world as we wish it could be. In our favorite plays, the villains are dispatched, true love conquers all, and if the heroes die, well, at least we can take solace that it was a noble death. Even Romeo and Juliet can rest easy, knowing that their families have stopped their feud by the end of Act 5. But in that other Verona, things are a little more true to life. Proteus and Valentine get away with being scoundrels. Sexual assault is ignored, and women are forced to swallow their rage because it is what society expects them to do. Sylvia's silence after her assault is probably the most damning at all. She has no more lines after she is attacked, and during all those final moments, we can almost see her straining to hold her tongue. The men around her, like Crab the dog, have witnessed a tragedy and cannot bring themselves to shed a tear. So the real problem is not that Two Gentlemen of Verona is a weak play, but that it has been shoved into the wrong category. We have been trying to treat it as a comedy, but it is not a comedy, though it may have comical moments. It should be slotted in next All's Well That Ends Well and Measure for Measure as a play that defies an easy description. Those other plays have endings which are happy only to the people on stage, and they, like Two Gentlemen of Verona, present a much more complicated version of the world than the sunny one found in Shakespeare's more idealistic work. Alright, so now we're at the last section of this podcast where I'm going to tell you about a specific production that is available on DVD or somewhere online so you can watch and form your own opinion about the play I've discussed. <laughs> There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So, since Two Gentlemen of Verona is such an unpopular play, it has very rarely been filmed. And the only production that I've been able to find is the one performed by the BBC back in the early 80s. And this was a point when they were filming every Shakespearean play for TV. So I'm probably going to talk to you about the BBC again in later podcasts, because sometimes when you get to the, the rarer plays, it becomes harder to find professional productions that you can watch. Filmed in 1983, this was directed by Don Taylor, who chose some, shall we say, 
bizarre interpolations into the text, such as little children running around dressed as Roman gods, and there are some also unfortunate choices in music. The acting, however, is pretty good all around, with Tessa Peake Jones as Julia, Tyler Butterworth as Proteus, John Hudson as Valentine, and Joanne Pierce as Sylvia. All of them went on to have fairly steady careers in British television, and presumably elsewhere. And since she can't talk about any production of Two Gentlemen without mentioning the dog, I will say that Bella, who plays Crab, did two other movies, one of which was Highlander the Raven, a TV show based on the Highlander movie series that is probably more popular than Two Gentlemen itself. Now the low point for me in this production is actually the tween who they hired to play Speed, who I think was woefully miscast playing the clever clown as a prepubescent imp. This isn't the fault of Nicholas Cabe, the actor who played Speed, but since he has only two credits on IMDb, it's possible the entire experience soured him on acting and he went into something else. The BBC can generally be relied on to do quality productions of Shakespeare, and the best thing about the series they did is that every single production is set in its original time period, so that there's a focus on the text and not some crazy directorial interpretation. So I'm recommending this movie, but only because professional recorded productions of Gentlemen are so rare. Canada's Stratford Festival is rumored to be on a quest to produce all 38 plays and record them all for broadcast on movie screens across the country. So maybe one day we'll see a new production of Gentlemen, but until then, the BBC is all we have. I'll put a link to this and everything else I've talked about today on the show page. So that's it for this week. We're going to be moving chronologically through the plays, so the next one up is The Taming of the Shrew, in which we'll explore the problem of producing a show that's both sexist and popular. Shakespeare clearly had a problem with unhappy, happy endings in the beginning, since Shrew, like two gentlemen, has another one of those final acts that make anyone who isn't a misogynist more than a little discontent. If you've enjoyed this podcast, subscribe to the feed, and hey, why not rate and review it in the iTunes store or somewhere else on the wilds of the internet? You can comment on SoundCloud, you can comment on the show page, which you will find via my website at www.joelfishbane.net. And hey, speaking of my website, while you're there, you can find out more about me and my work, including my novel, The Thunder of Giants, a book about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle in this world that is too small to contain them. Shakespeare is all over that book. Henry V plays a major role, something which I'll talk about when we finally get to discussing that. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare on Bard. One play down. 37 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it.